Assalamu alaikum. You're listening to She Speaks Academic Muslimas. Today, we're talking to Dr. Sana Rizvi about her fresh off the press book called Undoing Whiteness and Disability Studies, The Special Education System and British South Asian Mothers that just came out with Palgrave Macmillan. She's interested in ethical and feminist qualitative research methodologies and researching the experiences of minoritized communities at the intersection of racism, ableism, and Islamophobia in the UK. She's a senior lecturer in education and early childhood studies at University of Liverpool. Before we begin, though, just a reminder, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And of course, share this episode with friends and family. Now let's turn to Dr. Rizvi. How are you? Uh, Alhamdulillah, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Alhamdulillah. I know you've been on the podcast a few times before, but we've never really talked about your scholarship before this, and I'm going to launch right straight into it. Congratulations on your new book. I wanted to ask, how did you even get into this project to begin with? What made you think about focusing on British South Asian mothers of children with disability? It started with my master's research 11 years ago, uh, where I was looking at homeschool relationships in an ethnic minority context and with parents of disabled children in a special school. And a lot of the findings from that research, or uh, I would say reflections from conducting that research, made me realize how there was an absolute lack of intersectional analysis. And, and not only did it not do justice to the experiences, understanding experiences of ethnic minority parents, but it also reinforced a lot of stereotypes about ethnic minorities. Yeah, so I saw this quote right at the beginning of your book, and I, I really it really touched me because it kind of seemed like the kind of experiences that a lot of us have. And the quote is, it's this lady, you're talking to this lady, and she says to you, she says, it's the parent from Bangladeshi backgrounds more than any other community. We need to engage them more. But it appears they're just indifferent. We've tried coffee mornings, parent groups. I mean, they just don't want to attend any of that. I personally think it's because they're women. They're shut up in their houses, aren't they? They're oppressed. They need to get out of their houses. They're living with with large families, with their in-laws and all their relatives. Where the, where's the privacy? And, you know, they're all related. Get into trouble for saying this, but we all know that they have babies with disabilities. I can't understand how you can marry your cousin and live with his entire family. Where's the romance in that? So I I saw this quote and it kind of reminded me of so many interactions we have within academia about about our own communities. And when we're researching our own communities and we run into these interaction with with, you know, the dominant people who are dominantly located, uh, I wanted to ask, why did you decide to include this interaction? Like, what's the significance of this? Well, as a British Pakistani, I, I think when I when she said this to me, this is a pastoral manager whose job it is to actually foster, cultivate relationships with ethnic minority parents, okay? So it's her job description to understand and work with families and parents of disabled children. Now, imagine if she's saying all of this, there is, I mean, this is an interesting point of reflection that even though I am saying that there is a lack of intersectional analysis in understanding experiences, there's also a very, very quick rush 
to judge and reduce our experiences to single issues without even going further and understanding, hang on a minute, what am I saying? And there was this lazy assumption that large families could only be seen as crowded, um, evading privacy and quality of one's personal life. In that single encounter, she had managed to cluster labels such as oppressed, large families, cousin marriages, and lack of romance to define your local British South Asian community. And actually, when I pointed out to her that I'm actually also married to my second cousin, and I also live in a joint family, it is it is at that point she was like, <laughs> she gave this very awkward <laughs> laugh. And I gave a very awkward laugh too, because this was my first interaction 11 years ago into this country. And I really wanted to pro progress with my dissertation. And she was that in, in many ways, that gatekeeper, you know, so I had to navigate this very carefully and say, actually, we don't get into each other's faces, there is privacy, and there is romance. But as I had, you know, headed back to my car, I was so angry and furious, because it didn't give me that it she didn't give me that moment to come back at her and to say, what you are saying implies a very, very, you know, you're stereotyping our experiences. But also, let me explain to you why we are living in like these large joint family systems where we are, you know, living in crowded homes. It's because we are not afforded ownerships. It's because the, the housing sector is institutionally racist. British Pakistanis and Bangladeshis are not homeowners, majority of them. And, and they have to live with these uh, within joint families because that is their support system. That is actually their opportunity to save up and actually own homes in future. So, you know, there was this kind of an assumption that that was coming with it. So I, I chose this reflection because it's an interesting stereotype, but it's so prevalent wherever I've gone people always start with that of what's the stereotype? What is that they know about us and that they can, they think this is an entry point into a conversation or where we would share a middle ground, but it's actually not. And I, and I, and I then have to go into this mini crash course of explaining where are they wrong? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's kind of microaggressive to encounter these kinds of interactions so often. I did see that in, in one of your chapters, I think it's chapter three, you talk about mothering within a Muslim context. And I bet that was a difficult chapter to write because having had so many interactions with people who essentialize your religion, it's kind of difficult then to write from within the religion. But one of the quotes that you use, because um, you interview these mothers and you use their quotations throughout the book, which I found quite enlightening. And uh, one of the mothers says, she says, quote, it was so emotional for us when he, Ahmed, was born. We asked, why us? Why him? You go through that. But again, that's that was what was meant to be. That's God's way. So God tests people in different ways. And this is a test. So religiously, we go down that route and it makes it a bit easier for us. So you use this quotation to illustrate the way that this mother is making making sense of her experiences. In what way did you see how people's experiences with their faith, with, with Islam, shape their view on disability? I think this is an interesting and complex complex issue and we have to understand that it intersects with ableism or it intersects with patriarchal structures that exist um, it also intersects with uh, you know how homeschool literature has been approached with regards to ethnic minority parents there's also another thing which people need to understand is that in the quran wealth and children 
are constantly used to remind parents to reflect on their everyday experiences and to be better people. So when people, when Quran mentions and wealth and, you know, your children are a way of improving yourself, it immediately feeds into this discourse as well. The mothers in the study, I use this quote because it's quite interesting. It's, it's very easy to fit this into, there's a, uh, it's very easy to fit this into a Kubler-Ross model of, you know, grief, the five stages of grief and where this fits in quickly. You know, she's going through this denial process. The next step should be surely this. And it's not. In this case, I mean, the mothers that I've interviewed, they do not identify with the Kubler-Ross model. And instead, they adopt an alternative trajectory to explain their experiences, which was set within a religious narrative of successfully overcoming divine test of being content with God's will. Interestingly, you know, these mothers can express grief, they can express anger, they can express joy, and they can express, uh, you know, different emotions at different points in their life and go back and forth. There is no linearity as far as, you know, raising or experiencing or mothering is concerned. And this is something that people need to understand that it again feeds back into this ableist discourse of, um, I mean, I've read literature around this of how, uh, the loss of the perfect child and how the Kubler-Ross model helps us to understand this. And I think when it comes to Muslim mothers, uh, it's this is not how we should be understanding their experiences. It's perfectly, I think, okay for us to think that mothers are having have this very honest and open relationship where they can express grievances with the God, where they can express anger with God, where they can express joy with God, because that is not just their faith. It is acting as their support system. It's almost like their confidant. I don't want to use the word confidant, but it is about being having that kind of caring and honest relationship. And that's what I noticed with the mothers that I was interviewing. Uh, yeah. I mean, religion is just such a personal and integrated topic. I love the way that you dealt with it in explaining the experiences of the mothers that you interviewed. You also address sexual rights of children and the ways that mothering impacts them. Could you elaborate uh, on that a little bit or maybe give us an example and maybe also talk about like how labor for mother is tied in with sexual rights? So this, again, we have to understand that Whatever sexual rights and sexual agency we're talking about, it has to be understood in the broader context of living in a welfare state that is, you know, been subjected to austere policies, living in a patriarchal state. When we talk about giving children and or discussing their sexual rights and agency, it's a difficult topic as it is for any parent to discuss. But when when we're talking it with talking about it from a religious context, we have to understand uh, that there is an element of there is internal internalized ableism. Let me ex expand on this. When we talk, for instance, the mothers that I talked to, they were few of them discussed that oh, it's you know, sex education is as Muslims we we don't we don't talk about this in our families, and and actually it would be um, you know it's pointless because our child would not be able to comprehend that. That you know when our child is being allowed to uh, explore sexual you know their uh, your sexuality in in educational settings, uh, for instance if they're masturbating and teachers are allowing that by putting them in a you know in a in a room so that they're okay with it. The Muslim mothers were like, no, we do not allow this. Now, this is quite interesting because it is a very difficult topic to talk 
to Muslims about? Because as it is, we don't talk about sexuality so openly, right? But when we're talking in terms of disabled children, we have to understand that we might not allow it for able-bodied children as well. But the fact that able-bodied children can explore sexual agency, can explore their sexuality without their parents finding it out, there, there, there is that element that there is that acknowledgement that we have to make, that we cannot infantilize, that we cannot internally fall to these ableist practices where we infantilize or desexualize the disabled children in the process of saying, oh, this is not. And mind you, we're, we're talking about Islam does not prohibit sex education. There's literally there's nowhere written that it's prohibited. You have to talk about sex education. But you have to understand that a lot of these interpretations have been constructed within a cultural context. So there is, it feeds into that cultural patriarchy kind of thing. It's not to do with religion itself, but it is to do with cultural patriarchy of how certain topics cannot be discussed, right? So again, when we're talking about sexual, sexual sexuality, sexual rights, we have to understand that some of the emotions or some of the views that mothers expressed did fall into that infantilized. And we have to acknowledge that at some point, these children are half sexuality. They are not desexualized. You cannot say that it will go above their heads if we talk about sex, sex education, or we don't allow this. Well, of course, you don't allow this for your disabled children as, as well as for your able-bodied children. But the fact that your able-bodied ch child can explore this, and you're able to use that, you're able to monitor and surveil your disabled kid, fight for them, whether they engage in sexual activity, I think that is... You know, controlling in many ways, that is depriving them of sexual agency. So this is a very difficult topic. It's not an easy topic to discuss within a Muslim context. And I do understand that. The other thing which I thought it, it intersects with is gender. And this is with regards to reproductive rights. This is with regards to, you know, autonomy and respect and dignity that we can afford. When we talk about disabled people, disabled individuals going through forced catheterization or forced sterilization or giving them forced contraceptives. What are we talking about here? We are talking about, we are depriving them. We are actually removing their reproductive rights. We're removing their body, bodily autonomy on, on issues that actually are directly relate to them. And, but at the same time, we have to realize that the person who's making it may not be the most influential, may not be the person who has the most choice available. Perhaps this is the only choice available. So when we're talking about, I mean, there were mothers who said, we don't have a child or we don't have a daughter right now. We don't have a daughter. So we don't have to worry about periods. We don't have to worry about changing them every month. And we have seen how in our neighborhoods that mothers have taken a step where they are giving contraceptives so that the care is managed. And this is an important issue because who is doing the care for the disabled children? It's not the state because there's a cutback on services. It's not the schools. It's the mothers who are being assigned this caring role, which is not paid. And then again, they're being put in a position they may not actually approve of, you know, these practices, but they have to as carers. So this is quite very delicate and a very, very conflicting position to be in because you're not the person with the choice and power to make those decisions. You're operating within a neoliberal welfare state that's cut back on services, that places the burden on mothers to do all the caring work, that places mother and still blames them for their appearing dysfunctional. Um, and yet 
you are the first part you, you know the first person that you can blame them is is the mothers it's not the state that's cut back on the services it's not you know, the institutions that are depriving rights of disabled people to to dignity to to you know, explore their reproductive agency and and all that but no so i think this is something that has to be explored further i'm not saying in this chapter i was mainly expanding on this that this needs to be explored within a muslim context this needs to be explored further in a south asian context mainstream islam does not explicitly prohibit sex education however religious interpretation of most mothers in the current study disapproved of exposing their child to sex education and that indicates that religion and sexual rights are both enacted within a cultural framework a cultural patriarchal framework and this was also met in you know enmeshed with their religious identities which disapproves of public display of sexuality and sexual experiences so when we are talking about this i think one of the things going forward is how do we have this discourse where we include children and 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 young people disabled children and young people conversations with parents able bodied parents uh, with regards to how sexuality can be explored how how can they express their gender right how, their freedom this kind of ties in right with my next question because you speak about how the culture is kind of intermeshed into it uh, one of the terms that you introduce in the book is cultural bubbles what is a cultural bubble and how does it or in what ways does it protect and expose mothers within within their communities so i define a cultural bubble as a small but meaningful space which represents people and cultural symbols that most closely reflect intercategorial positioning and values it's it's not talking about cultural similarity here other people who one aligns with in terms of religiosity educational background family values support language and so forth and people can belong to different cultural bubbles and how i thought about this is because i i in the process of talking to mothers i realized that they're not only being excluded from formal spaces or an informal spaces such as cultural community centers because they're ableist they're not inclusive I realized that mothers were quite agentic in that process that once they realized the spaces that they were being excluded from it they quickly formed their own networks they quickly formed their own bubbles they quickly formed their own you know network of people then there or or a spaces that they you know associate as inclusive and that is really important for us to understand that in terms of seeking support in terms of seeking services and provisions in terms of feeling at home in terms of exposing their child to their values this is really important because once a mother realizes that my local mosque for instance does not have a staircase not have a lift or does not have an inclusive atmosphere and and my child and myself are not welcome she's not going to just stay at home she's going to find a space that actually provides that kind of meaningful spiritual experience to her and it might be that she finds it in the in in the house of her friends so for instance a lot of these mothers used to gather around um in someone's home and they would you know uh practice yoga or talk and and it was these these women belonged to very different social positionings but yet they were able to form these this inclusive space on their own and it was not based on cultural similarity if you were to strictly say but it was based on inclusiveness now can a person belong to conflicting cultural bubbles or cultural bubbles with conflicting values yes i think we all do that we don't 
at all, all our circles don't agree on the same value. So I think it's unfair to expect mothers to do the same. If you feel that you are attending, let's say, a, a space, a cultural community center that is able to offer your child on weekends a cultural experience, but at the same time you realize that, hang on a minute, some of this, their positioning is quite different to yours. So, for instance, in terms of dress, for instance, a lot of mothers didn't dress in, in traditional kurta shalwar, but they were going into community centers where there was you know, there was a heavy representation of women wearing very Eastern wear. But these mothers were also Pakistanis who were coming in jeans. But the reason why they were going in was because they were still able to connect. Their, their child was still able to have that inclusive experience. And I think this is quite interesting because when we as parents act and make judgments about where our child will be accepted, we are willing to negotiate. We're willing to be part of circles. We're willing to be part of networks that offer our child something. We can we can take that. We can sort of incur the cost of though it being not inclusive in some ways but the overall benefit that it offers to our child that sort of colors experience so speaking of you know women wearing different uh, uh, clothings and different cultural uh, donning different cultural symbols did you see a difference in the uptake and critique of the system when it comes to first and second generation immigrant mothers and by the way i loved i loved your nod to what's his face, Reza Ahmad, because uh, you, your chapter is called Englistan and Citizenship. Yes, <laughs> your chapter is called Englistan and Citizenship. And I actually enjoy that particular song. I think it's called the, the song is called Englistan. I'm sure he's not the first person who came up with that term, but uh, but I do enjoy that song of his. And so I enjoyed that nod to that term. But did you see a difference when it came to how people critique the system depending on whether they were first generation immigrants or second generation immigrants? Uh, I think so. I had a combination of first generation and second generation mothers that I talked to. There is no clear cut distinction when we talk about British born mothers versus first generation mothers. If you're talking about, you know, this is how the literature actually makes makes it out to be. It reduces them to who's passive and who's who's who's, who's more agent, agentic in that process. And I, I again think this actually reduces the whole debate. I think when you're talking about first generation and second generation mothers, you have to talk about in the context of immigration policies that have happened over the last 10 years. You have to talk about all the social and wider social inequalities that that affect these families. So when we talk about British born mothers, their grievances were far more grounded in the belief that they were well within their rights as citizens to question and express grievances about state services their families had received without fear of being perceived as ungrateful. And this is so important because when you're a first, I've been through that, I'm a first generation mother. And until I had received my citizenship, I was so hesitant to voice grievances or complaints with the with with the healthcare system or the education system that my child was exposed to. And when I was talking to first generation mothers, it's not that they, that they don't have grievances. It's because that they, they know the very policies that, you know, because they're, they're, they have a transitionary status, they, they're newly, they're newly, uh, you know, they're new citizens, they're newer citizens. So they, they know how uh, their citizenship is conditional and they can't, 
be vocal about their grievances in the ways that second generation mothers can be. So it's not that they didn't have grievances or it's not that they were passive. They were not. They were quite vocal about what is missing in the healthcare system, what is missing in the education system. But they thought that it would put their child, it would put their family in a, in a, you know, tricky situation uh, that would be hard to get out of. So that's one thing that I realized about, uh, you know, with, with British born mothers. The other thing which I thought was with British born mothers, the knowledge of how to deal with discrimination and racism and institutional bureaucracy was partly learned from their experiences of going through that system. They also had a financial stake because their grandparents, their their great grandparents had paid into the system and they had got nothing out of it. So he had seen what it had done to their parents. They had seen what it had done to their grandparents. And so they were more, they were more aware that it does, it's, it's not a relationship of, oh, if I work, I will get the benefit. Or if I contribute to the society, I will get the benefit. They were much more aware that it's not so simple. There is institutional bureaucracy and racism that will always put them on the periphery of things. With these, you know, first generation mothers, that obviously financial stake was missing because they were starting out, they were forming their own families. So in that sense, yes, I, I think, you know, they they did not have that uh, kind of vocalization of, of being, you know, upset with the system, even though they had poor experiences. Yeah, excellent analysis. I mean, it especially resonates about the first generation immigrant because I am also first generation immigrant. And, you know, I mean, in the era where citizenships are stripped and there's so much Islamophobia, that's a very pertinent concern. So you end with some recommendations to remove institutional barriers that impede minoritized mothers in caring for their disabled children. Could you just highlight a few here? I think there are so many things that can be done on different fronts. So first off, we have to start looking at how religion can play a positive role. It is playing a positive role in the lives of Muslim communities. We're just not acknowledging it. We want to problematize it. There's a tendency to say that it holds back parents from, you know, taking services or provisions or that there's an issue or cultural issue or religious issue when there is not. I think what needs to be done is that there needs to be a greater representation within mosques uh, from there needs to be a greater representation within religious scholarship of how issues around caring, sexuality, gender rights, uh, mar- marriageability prospects, education or citizenship of of being fully you know of being muslims can be can be explored within the context of disability because when you are talking about these issues you're only considering the experiences of able bodied individuals you're excluding disabled children young people and individuals you're not looking at how this intersects with policies you're not looking at how this intersects with social inequalities and i think the the mothers one thing that i've learned from them is that they had far more greater knowledge on religious jurisprudence than than any than than most religious scholars would because they had gone to the end degree of finding out what is it that I need to know in terms of day-to-day lived experiences, in terms of caring responsibilities, in terms of can my child do, should my child be a full-time five five times a day in namaz, or should my child be reading Quran if he has no comprehension? These are such very delicate matters that need to be explored, and they're not being explored enough in traditional religious Islamic scholarship. They need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed in a way that is inclusive of the opinions of disabled individuals and 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 disabled families. Uh, so that's one thing. 
And I think there, there's a lot of interesting work that's being already done. So if you look at there's there's an initiative that's currently being done by Muslim Council of Britain. It's called Women in Mosque Conver- uh, Conversation Toolkit. They're trying to promote women leadership in mosques. They want women on boards. They want women to be part of main, con- you know, main conversations. But I think we shouldn't stop there. I think this is just the first step. We need to include people from different walks, uh, from different aspects of life. We need to include um, different nationalities, different ethnicities, different different Muslim families, from different socioeconomic statuses. We need to include disabled people. The, the disabled families need to be at the you know, forefront of these conversations. So there are some interesting uh, initiatives happening, and uh, that's one place to begin with. The other thing which I think you cannot ask, you know, you cannot entirely rely on mosques. You cannot entirely rely on cultural community centers. And the reason why you can't do this is because there have been massive cuts to them. You know, there have been funding cuts since 2000 and, you know, 10. We, you know, one study says there's been 16 billion pound worth of funding cuts to uh, the voluntary charity sector. Um, and in another study, we're talking about 50 percent of councils have made cuts to the voluntary se- sector. And these services are actually lifeline for minority communities, such as social services, housing services, welfare assistance and access to services such as, you know, ESOL and English language courses. So when you're talking about, oh, there is such low uptake of services in ethnic minority families, you have to understand you have to be cynical about this and say, well, actually, it serves the state's purpose. If there are funding cuts, you wouldn't want everyone to take services, would you? And I'm quite cynical when it comes to this. So I think there there is some kind of intentional hard to reach uh, persona that the state has about its services. The less you know, the better, and hence lower uptake amongst different communities. And even when now you are applying for services and provisions, you actually have to prove you're a citizenship. And again, it intersects with who's a citizen, who's a full citizen. Are you British born? If you're not, then you have lesser rights. All of these things have to be taken into account when you're thinking about disabled families. And again, people might say this is not an educational discourse. It is. I think this is the biggest injustice. As long as you are excluding conversations that are directly related to housing inequality, racial inequality, social services, unemployment, as long as you're excluding all these debates about citizenship and immigration uh, trajectories, you are doing the biggest injustice. You are excluding a big part of that conversation that should be at the center of the inclusion discourse when we're talking about uh, minoritized disabled families. So that's one thing that we need to be thinking about in terms of how can we hold the state accountable? How can we push the state to do better. And there have been, again, good, good, you know, initiatives. For instance, the Runny Me Trust and the Good Law Project are holding the government accountable for different aspects. You know, they're holding the government accountable for the trace and track tenders that they put out. So it, good work is being done. But we we have to stop saying that the informal sector has to pick up or mosques have to pick up or cultural community. We have to hold accountable the formal you know spaces. We have to hold accountable the schools that are not including or we have to hold accountable the overly white institutional spaces that are not only bureaucratic, but they're also very racist. And, you know, they reduce our experiences to single issues. So that's something that needs to be done. Excellent recommendations. I this kind of also like leads into my final question that I had for you, but I think you've already kind of answered it on why you named the book Undoing Whiteness. In what ways do you see your framework undoing whiteness? If you want to say a couple more lines about that, that'd be great, because I think 
I think you kind of already captured that, but I would like to kind of get a mental picture of what was, uh, what were you thinking about when you titled the book? When we understand, when we are trying to engage with the literature experiences of minoritized disabled families, there's a damaging narrative done at an epistemic level with very flawed pre presumptions that the education system does not discriminate, that the health care system does not discriminate, that the social care system does not discriminate on the grounds of sexual orientation, disability, socioeconomic status. And by this rationale, the responsibility of poor outcomes is squarely laid at the individual or familial a lack of educational aspiration or motivation to succeed. And so when I'm talking about undoing whiteness, we have to get rid, we have to dismantle these problematic, uh, flawed assumptions. So the reason why I called it undoing whiteness is because firstly, I want to shift the discourse from special education uh, field to disability studies. That's one thing. As long as we focus on special education field, we will not be considering the wider inequalities, the wider oppressive systems that impact the lives of disabled people. Disability studies has to be joined up, has to be examined, has to be uh, looked at when we're talking about the experiences of minoritized families. The maternal accounts in this book actually speak the truth about the special education system in this country. It does not see their children in their entirety as individuals who are rooted in their culture, religion, ethnicity, heritage and other intercategorical positioning. What it does instead is it problematizes all these positionings. It says, oh, you're Muslim. That's why you have to, you have to be watched. You're unruly because you are this, you know? So we have to start looking at the, the racist kind of frameworks that we employ to understand the experiences of disabled families. In some ways, disability studies has always been intersectional because it recognizes all the various ways that a person's made vulnerable in society and it's uh, that it's about the obstacles set up in society to impede you. So disability studies has always kind of looked at the systemic injustice as opposed to uh, problematizing the person. Uh, that yeah, often a, lot that about, a lot of it is a, is about the social model of disability and a lot of, uh, of it is about, you know, the medical deficit lens with which we view the experiences of anyone who falls short of the heteronormative. So that's one thing. But the other thing is when we talk about minoritized families, I think there's another thing that we need to be considering is that even within disability studies, there is an overly white experience that is currently being represented. And if we are to approach and if we are to say we have, you know, we are moving towards social justice goals for minoritized communities, we have to stop problematizing them. We have to stop uh, looking at how their religion or their cultural aspects or, uh, or how their heritage is, is. It actually falls into that deficit narrative. So it's almost antithetical if we constantly reduce their experiences. Um, and it, again, abdicates all that responsibility and accountability from the wider systems that are supposed to provide equal rights. They're supposed to provide equal citizenship. They don't for minoritized communities. They don't for minoritized disabled families. So that's, that's I think, the, the main argument that I'm focusing on in this book. Thank you so much, Sana. I mean, uh, this is an excellent book. I really recommend it to anybody who's in disability studies um, and or in educational policy. 
um, the field of education at large. The book is called Undoing Whiteness and Disability Studies, The Special Education System in British South Asian Mothers, and it came out with Palgrave Macmillan this, this summer. I really recommend that you guys go out and get the book or have your institution order the book. Again, thank you, Sana, for coming on the podcast and discussing your research. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam.